That is a uh, perfect promise this morning as we dive into what we'll be uh, taking on through God's Word. Um, we're looking at the temptations of Christ, and what a great song to kind of set us up to dealing with this passage of Scripture that God's love will never fail. God's love will never give up on us, and we all will fall to temptation. We'll fall to temptations today, the rest of this week, every single day, because temptations, when we fall to them, lead to sin, and we need that reminder, God's love will never fail. It's never going to give up on us. And so as we deal with this subject, that is a great reminder to begin with. Um, temptations, they come in all shapes and sizes. And uh, it's just a reminder for me that what may tempt you may not tempt me, and what may tempt me may not tempt you. Uh, we all have our different battles, we all have different things, but the Bible teaches us that temptations are the means that Satan uses to lure us, entice us, to pull us away from God's presence to where God wants us to be. Uh, we are able to find the temptations in all three of the synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to be focusing primarily out of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, if you want to make your way there. Uh, Matthew and Luke have the longest recording of the temptation accounts. Uh, Mark gives us this little bit of little snippet. And there's a difference between Matthew and Luke's account of or recording of this event in that they switch the order of the temptations. Matthew records the temptations as stones to bread, falling from the temple, and bowing to the devil. Luke switches the, the last two in the order. So he begins with stones to bread, then he goes to bowing to the devil and the falling of the temple. And the changing the order kind of reminds us that temptations aren't built upon one another you know we don't surpass a temptation or get past a temptation or no longer fall to the temptation and then level up to a higher level of temptations that's not the way they work all temptations are hard if they were not hard and difficult to overcome then they wouldn't be temptations and so when we overcome a temptation it's not that we step step to a next level of life and Satan's got to begin upping his game. He comes at us in the very similar ways and maybe just at different times in our life. Again, we're going to primarily be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. I want to begin by reading of Mark's little snippet. It's only two verses and I made the, the pastor joke last week, Mark's kind of the Russian gospel because it's Russian to get to Jesus's life and ministry. But um, he only gives two verses concerning the temptations of Christ. And one thing he does let us know, as the other Gospels do, is the temptations of Christ happen immediately after our favorite Baptist, John, baptized Jesus in the waters of the Jordan River. So Mark reads, The Spirit immediately drove him, and that him is Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And because we want to know what exactly happened in the wilderness, we can turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. You can also look in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 in dealing with the temptations, but we're going to come out of the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We'll use Luke as well. But, uh, so Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So that's pretty similar to what Mark just told us. And then Matthew and Luke both give us some more information. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you, if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. 
I thank you for the promises that we were able to sing about you that pours over our life. I thank you that you have given us identity and who you say we are according to your word will never change. Lord, that you never change. You're always faithful. You're always loving and kind. You're a God who disciplines us and rebukes us and corrects us because you love us. And as we come to open your word, we ask that your word do just that. That it opens our eyes to see the truth. That it, it, it touches our hearts and we apply the understanding you give us this morning. And Lord, I don't have the knowledge, the wisdom, the power or authority of myself to do what needs to be done this morning. So I submit completely to your will and your spirit. That your spirit would use me as an instrument of your righteousness. I pray for all here this morning and all who may listen to this message, Father, that their ears will be open, that their hearts, even in this moment, you would prepare their hearts for what you're going to lay before us. Lord, thank you that you went before and you prepared the way. You showed us how we might live a life that is holy and pleasing to you. You showed us the keys to withstand the devil's schemes. And Lord, let us see that this morning. I thank you, Lord, that there is not a person in this room that you're not aware of where they are with you in a relationship. You're not, you are fully aware of the struggles that they're going through. You're fully aware of the praises that are upon their hearts. You're fully aware of their frustrations. And Lord, you are a very big God and you can take them all. Thank you for allowing us to be in your presence. Thank you for the promise of your word where two or more meet and gather in your name that you are here. And so let your word puncture our innermost being. Let your word revive us again. Let your spirit move inside of us. Transform us into individuals and a church that we are not yet in this moment by the time we leave here. Forgive me, Father, where I have failed you. And I thank you again for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your word. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So with the three Gospels, there's some things we can put together. The then here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, the then coincides with the immediately that we read from Mark in chapter 1, verse 12. It's just saying that it, it happened right after the events of the baptism of Jesus. And that's going to be significant as we walk through the temptations, particularly the first two that Matthew gives us. Now, Matthew and Luke both agree that Jesus was led up. Mark uses the word that Jesus was drove into the wilderness. Both words imply that Jesus was, had this irresistible impulse, that the Holy Spirit was taking him into the wilderness or into this isolated, uninhabited place to take on these temptations that Satan was going to bring. Before we dive into this, it's very important to point out that God did not tempt Jesus, and God does not tempt us. In the, God, in the book of James chapter 4, the Bible says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. What we're doing and we're going to see in the temptations is we're going to see how the devil comes at us with these temptations. The idea of temptations are to lure us or to pull us away from where God wants us to be. We're going to see his tactics, his schemes. We're going to see how Jesus combats these tactics and what the devil is, is, most, what the devil is aiming for in our own life and pulling us away from God. Now, both or all three Gospels says Jesus was led up by his spills into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, which happens immediately after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Now, does anybody remember from last week what God spoke over Jesus when Jesus came out of the waters? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Some, some translation, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, so this is important to understand that God just spoke this over his son when he came out of the waters. And if you notice, when we come to the very first temptation, what Satan questions Jesus about, if you are the son of God. God had just given Jesus that a boy. That's my boy. I'm so proud of him. I love him. I'm so grateful for what he's doing. He is dearly treasured by me. And then God leads him into the wilderness to be, tempta to be tempted. 
And so from the very get-go, what we learn is temptations remind us that we all must come down from the mountain. When I refer to mountain, I refer to those times we have those experiences with God. And sometimes, you know, they're like at conferences or camps or, 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 or getaways and retreats where God's presence is so evident. His voice is so clear. We know he's speaking to us. We get these, these spiritual tingling sensations all over us that God is so good. He's so great. We're, we're ready to sing Kumbaya no matter who's around us. But the reality of Scripture and on those mountaintops that we have with God, is we don't get to stay there. Nowhere in Scripture do you find God interacting with His people, giving them this experience with Him where He is so evident, He is so clear, He is speaking so much truth in their life, that He says, hey, why don't we set up camp here for a while? That's what I call the mountaintop of God. It's when we have those experiences, but the reality is Scripture reveals that after these experiences, God takes us back into the valleys. He takes us back into what we call life, where we will be tested, we will be tried, and we will be tempted. And the reason that is, as Scripture reveals, when we come down the mountain and we have the testings and the temptations and the trials, they reveal the genuineness of our faith. It is easy to praise God when everything is good and He is evident, but we, when we are in the midst of life, we find out what we actually believe. We have to come down the mountain to learn, have we actually applied what God revealed to us when we were there? Are we actually going to live this out? Do we actually trust this? Again, nowhere in Scripture do we find God allowing His people to be completely isolated from the things of this world. Yet throughout Scripture we see God giving guidance, giving instructions, giving this revelation of Himself while His people live in this world. We may have opportunities to get away, but God never calls us to become isolated from this world. We are not to be of this world even though we are in it. Just go look back in Scripture One day God shows up to Abraham's camp. This is before Abraham had any kids of his own outside of Ishmael. He shows up to Abraham's camp, and Abraham must have had a nice view of the valley below as God shows up, and they have a little meal together. God tells him that he's going to bless him with his own son. It's not going to be a servant. It's not going to be someone from outside the family. It's going to be Sarah and his son. And before God leaves on that day, He says, I'm going to reveal what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham. And so even though Abraham has this experience with God, he probably has this beautiful scenery to overlook. God, in that moment, reminds him that there's sin in this world and judgment is going to come. And sometimes we forget about that when we have these experiences with God, that after we've experienced them, we have to go back into a world of sin. You look at Moses. Moses led the people of God out of Egypt, leading them to the promised land. They go and they arrive at Mount Sinai. Moses spends 40 days in the presence of God without food or drink. God sustained him. And as he comes down the mountain, his faithful ally Joshua is there to meet him. And they begin walking down the mountain. And Joshua says to Moses, it sounds like there's a war in the camp. Because as they had this experience with God and they began coming down the mountain, the people of God had turned to idolatry and built their own golden calf to begin to worship. Moses came down to the reality that this world is still in sin. Joshua led the people of God. These were people that had no combat background. They were not an army. They were people of wanderers. Forty years just wandering around. That was their training. And they go into the promised land and they find their first victory. Wow, they wandered around Jericho, right? For seven days, they just wandered around. And God said that when you do this, I'm going to give this land to you as a sign that I'm giving you all of it. But you must not take the things that are devoted to me. Anybody know what they did? Exact opposite of what God told them to do. They just had this experience that God is going to fight for us. God is for us. He is giving us this land. He is gifting it to us. And what do they do? They're tempted to not trust God. And they take David, worship God and serve God. He wasn't perfect. But in his worshiping and serving God, 
King Saul turned on him because King Saul saw that David was anointed. He was, he was set apart by God. So even though David was doing the right thing, even though God had spoken over his life and David heard God's word to him, you are my king, he still had to come down the mountain. When we come down the mountain, it, it reveals to us those experiences we've had with God, those things that God has spoken over our heart, those moments of clarity. Are we actually going to believe them when it's time to apply them? Are we actually going to live them out? Our passage says that Jesus was fasting, verse 2, for 40 days and 40 nights. The reading means that Jesus fasted for 40 days consecutively. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 2, it says, For 40 days he was being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Which, I mean, thanks Luke, that seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? I can go a couple hours and I get hungry. Jesus went 40 days. This was not a typical Jewish fast, even if it was 40 days. Jew the Jewish people would fast for 40 days, but they would break the fast when the sun went down and they would start it again when the sun came up. And so they just wouldn't eat when it was daylight. But Jesus fasted consistently and consecutively for 40 days and the gospel writers point out he became hungry. Now, why is that important for us to know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became hungry? Because it speaks of His human nature. He felt hunger, just like we feel hunger. He felt compassion. We know that Jesus was tired. How tired do you have to be to sleep on a boat in the middle of a storm? He wept. He became thirsty when He was on the cross. It's a very small statement that he was hungry, but it's a very huge theological statement that is being made here. It is saying that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. He has the full authority and power of God, but at the same time, he relinquished that authority at times. He relinquished that power. It's not that he couldn't do it. He just chose not to. The scriptures reveal this and, and phrase it as Jesus being the Son of God, that's 100% God, and then the Son of Man, 100% man. What it reveals in the temptation is Jesus made the choice to submit to the will of God by limiting himself and taking on mankind's limitations. Then Matthew tells us in verse 3, what begins to transpire? The tempter came. Jesus will give him his name by the end of this. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But notice when the tempter comes, the tempter comes when it appears that Jesus is at his weakest moment. He's hungry. He's feeling the limitations of the body. And it's important for us to realize as we deal with temptations and we deal with the devil's attacks on us, is no matter how big and scary and evil Hollywood or anyone else tries to put the devil tries to put Satan. He is only brave enough and only has enough confidence to take on our God when he appears in his most weakened state. And the same goes for us. Because we are owned by God, claimed by God, belong to God, known by God. Satan comes at us in our most vulnerable, weakened state. And one of those most vulnerable, weakened states are when we isolate ourselves, like Jesus here is isolated. Other times when we go through trials and sufferings, sometimes when we feel we don't get what we deserve or what we want, then Satan comes in to attack. We fall into temptation to remind us that we fall short of the glory of God, His holy standard, and we're still in need of Jesus. Temptations are the tool to which Satan uses to pull us from God, but temptations can also be the tool to which remind us we still need Jesus every single day. Temptations, and even when we fall into temptations, remind us that we need to fall on our knees at the foot of the cross. I want to just speak a truth. Being tempted is not the sin. If you are tempted by something, that is not the sin. It's when you give in to the temptations which give birth to the sin. That's when we fail. That's when we fall short of God. Because no matter where we are in our relationship with God, we're all going to be tempted. 
And so in looking at these three temptations, the, the magical word, if you want to, if you're one of those that doesn't mind like circling things or blocking things or underlining things in your scriptures, then in each one of the temptations, here's the, here's the word. The word is if. If. Verse 3, if you are the Son of God. Jump down to verse 5, if you are the Son of God. Jump to verse 9, if you will fall down and worship me. What does the if tell us? The if tells us the devil has no power to make us do anything. We have no grounds when we stand before God and say, well, you know, the devil made me do it. That's not going to hold any weight. If the devil could make us sin, then we would not be guilty of our sin. So the devil comes before us with this if. In the first two temptations in Matthew, the if temptations come across as a taunt. They're calling into question. They're calling to cast doubt into Jesus' mind. It's the same tactic that Satan, the tempter, has been using since Genesis chapter 3. Satan's goal through these temptations is to cast doubt in our mind and our heart concerning what God has spoken over us through His Word. And notice the first temptation, if you are the Son of God. Jesus' identity had been clearly spoken by God just before this event, 40 days before. Here is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Satan comes after us though and he says, if you are really a Christian, if you are a child of God, we have to keep in mind the devil knew who Jesus was. Jesus was in the beginning. And we can read this passage and other passages and we can completely forget Jesus created the devil. He created the fallen angels. The devil was fully aware of Jesus' power and authority. But if he can get Jesus to succumb to these temptations, then Jesus cannot be the perfect atoning sacrifice and we all die in our sins. So he says, if you are the Son of God. He wants to cast doubt into his identity. And that's what Satan wants to do with us through temptations, to make us doubt our identity as children of God, to lure us away from where we should be and what we should do to where we shouldn't be and what we shouldn't do. The devil wants us to doubt God's Word. Because if he can get us to doubt God's Word, then he can get us to doubt God's authority. He can get us to doubt whether or not, can I actually trust what is in this book? And if he can get us to doubt that, then anything is fair game. But we hear God's word speaking to our heart. It calls for a response. And this is how the temptation comes in our life. We respond a lot like Adam and Eve. We hear God speaking. We, hear, we know the response we should give. And our question is, do I really need to do this? Is it really that important? You know, so-and-so is not doing it. Why do I need to do it? But it's a very similar question to what Satan gave to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Did He really tell you to do that? See, this if leads us to disobedience because it leads us to second guess. Is that, is that really God speaking? Is that really what God's Word is saying? And if I doubt God's Word, I, then I'm going to doubt God's authority. And if I doubt God's authority, then I'm going to doubt whether or not I can even trust God. And this first temptation seems... So strange, but again, Jesus is hungry. In verse 3, he says, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. So he throws in this first jab. He's fully aware of Jesus' emotional state, his physical state. But he knows that if Jesus does this, he's going to go against God's will. He's going to go against God's purpose. So what does Jesus do? He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. The passage Jesus quotes, is this verse from Deuteronomy. It says, And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The passage that Deut uh, from Deuteronomy 8.3 that Jesus quotes concerning the first temptation comes from the time where the people of God, the Israelites, had to be completely reliant upon God. They were calling to rely and to trust that God would be their provider. 
The context of the passage is God's people, His people of promise, His people of covenant. They had just come out of Egypt. They were not only learning who God was and how to live for God, but how to rely on Him. So in those early years, God was teaching them to become humble, to submit to His authority, to submit to His purpose, to trust in Him, to rely on Him alone. And when Jesus uses this passage from this context, He's telling the devil, though being the Son of God, He had the authority, He had the power, He could have easily churned stones to bread. He's telling the devil from this verse, I rely on God as my provider. If God can take care of an entire nation in the wilderness, then I have no doubt that God can take care of little old me. See, temptations cause us to doubt God's provision. They make us question, who am I going to rely on? Am I going to rely on my own means because Jesus had the means to do this? Or am I going to rely upon what God is going to provide for me in this? I find this temptation when it comes to credit. And I don't know how you feel about, feel about credit. Um, you know, we have a loan for our house. So technically we don't own the house, the bank does. Because I promise you, if we stop paying for the house, the bank would say you can now leave. Uh, we have a loan on our car. Uh, and so if we stop paying that, then they would come and take the car. So I don't know how you feel about credit. I, I, I'm under the place where I think some places it's okay, and then some places it's just stupid. And the place that's stupid, I think, is credit cards. Because, and I understand, and I've had this rebuttal before, I've had this conversation. So this conversation, when I talk about this, some people, well, I use credit cards because, you know, we paid off the end of the month and I use all the points or whatever perks I get, and that's how I, and you, if you're that disciplined, man, praise Jesus for you, Right? You're not tempted. Like I know I've been tempted in the past. That's what I'm saying. You have different temptations that I have. And I have different temptations you have. I know that I would have issues because I'd be like, well, you know, I don't want to take it out of savings, so I'll just swipe it and we'll pay for it later. And then you, you just kind of forget about it. But one thing I've learned about credit cards is credit cards keep me from relying on God to provide for me in the moment. Instead of going to God in prayer, God, would you please take care of this situation? I go to Visa or MasterCard or American Express or whatever's in, and I just, all right. And that just opened my eyes to credit. And I know some people, well, that's, that's our, our emergency fund. But there's other ways to do that that God's Word teaches us to build things up where we actually rely upon what God has already given us instead of stepping out of that and relying upon something that's in our wallet. Again, if you have a credit card, I'm not trying to like bash you and make you feel bad. I've had credit cards in the past and I've done a lot of stupid stuff with them. I'm just saying maybe that's keeping you from seeing what God wants to provide for you in the moment because you're not having to pray about that. You're not having to wait on Him. Not having to be still before him. And just stick the thing in, swipe it, whatever, and you move on. Temptations cause us to doubt that God will ever provide for us. And so we rely upon our own means. That's what Satan wants Jesus to do in this moment, to rely upon his own means. The second temptation. It says Jesus took him to the holy city. Holy city, speaking of Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle means that Jesus and Satan were about 180 feet above the ground, able to look over this place where people were coming to worship God, to offer sacrifices. And Satan says, if, verse 6, you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now, if he was the Son of God, if he was Jesus, which is what he's calling to doubt, he's wanting to doubt his identity, then surely God, his Father, who just said he loved him and cherished him, is deeply infatuated with him, surely God would step in, swoop down his angels, and save the day. Surely if he was the Son of God, if Jesus happened to just take that big old step and fall down, he would land perfectly fine like in an Iron Man stance, and he'd walk away okay. 
He's wanting him to doubt God's love for him. That's what temptations do. Temptations cause us to doubt God's love. Devil, right here in this moment, is taunting Jesus to question whether or not his father actually loves him. And how does Jesus know that God loves him? How do we know? Because of God's faithfulness, which is revealed through his word. It's also important to note, the devil had no power to make Jesus do anything. Just because it says the devil took him, the only reason the devil is able to take Jesus to this place is because Jesus was 100% submitting to the will of God and God was allowing it to happen. This last Wednesday night, we went through the book of Job, which is a very uplifting book. But one thing we see in the book of Job is any temptations or any things that come upon us in our life is only because God permits it. God has to sign off on it. Satan just can't freely come at you. And Scripture backs this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. It says, He, God, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able or what you are capable of. But Satan brings these temptations as a direct assault and attack not on us, not on our character, but his attack is on the character and faithfulness of love of God. We may physically and spiritually go through it, but the purpose is to test our faith in who God is. Do I trust who God is? Who His character is? Do I trust God will be faithful? Do I trust God loves me the way His Word says He loves me? The devil couldn't push Jesus off. He couldn't even make Jesus jump. He had no authority to do so. He couldn't force Jesus to do anything. And he can't force us to do anything. It comes down to choice. What God has gifted us in free will. We have to make a choice. And this is what sin ultimately is defined as. We are choosing to obey the devil over obeying God. That's sin. I'm choosing to obey what Satan has is better than what God has promised. And so I fall into that. And we all do it. We're all guilty of it. In the first temptation, the devil tempted Jesus. Jesus combated temptation with the Word of God. Jesus does the same in the second temptation. But do you see what the devil does in the second temptation? He quotes Scripture. Verse 6, he says, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike a foot against you. It, it's, it's right here telling us that Satan knows the Word of God, and he knows how to bend the Word of God. Because temptations come to make us doubt God's worthiness. Make us doubt whether God is worthy of our worship, worthy of our affection, worthy of our attention. How can we trust God? Why should we worship God if God is not going to be faithful to what God has spoken? But here's the thing. In quoting this passage of Scripture, this passage comes from Psalms 91, verse 11 and 12. This is what the passage says from, from Psalm 91, 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Sounds very close to what Satan says, but the devil leads out to protect or guard you in all your ways. The, that phrase, which the devil omits, is an important statement within the context of that verse. So Satan knows Scripture, but he knows how to twist Scripture out of context to fit his agenda and his means. And he uses preachers and writers to do this all the time. To take something out of context, to make it sound right, but omitting what makes it stay into context. The context of the passage says, to which Satan omits, is that God will be faithful in protecting and supporting us as long as we continue to walk in God's ways. And so the temptation here for Jesus would mean that Jesus would have to step out of God's ways and therefore lead the protection and the supportment that God has given us. 
God will be our refuge, and we need to continue to dwell in His presence. So the devil knows Scripture, but he misquotes it. He takes it out of context. And when anybody does this with the Word of God, they are not imitating God, but they are imitating the devil. It's also important to recognize the devil may know Scripture, but it does him no good. It does him no good. He's eternally condemned already. His judgment is already set. So though he knows Scripture, he has no reverence to it. And for us, just a nice little sub-point. There's a huge difference in knowing of God's Word and God and knowing God's Word and God. Knowing of has little power and does very little in one's life. But knowing it has full power. Knowing of God and knowing of God's Word typically has little impact. But knowing it personally changes us. It goes on in verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I love this about Jesus because I think if I was in this moment where someone was misquoting Scripture, and you may be able to relate, I think I would begin getting into a debate about it. We like to debate a lot in our life. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't argue with Satan. He doesn't even take Satan to Sunday school. Satan, let me clarify that verse for you for a second. He doesn't try to enter into a Bible drill with Satan. You know, see if we can find Deuteronomy or Psalms first and, and read it how it's written. Jesus doesn't feel like he needs to prove himself. He doesn't provide some needless miracle for Satan. What he does is he turns to Scripture, quotes it in context within his own setting to give that Scripture a full meaning in his life. What Jesus quotes, you shall not put your Lord your God to the test, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. In the context of that verse and that situation that Jesus uses, it actually speaks of an event that happens in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. The event, so Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, the quote from Deuteronomy concerns an event in Exodus. So Jesus knows the Word of God. Let's just, all right, He knows it. He's the living Word. He knows it. It concerns an event when the Israelites have just experienced the plagues. They've just come out of slavery. They've just come out of Egypt. They've just crossed the Red Sea. They just had their first worship service as a freed people. And after all these revelations that God has done in their life, after everything that God has done to show that He is worthy, that He will be with them, He fights for them, He has sent Moses as, as, as a helper and, and an instrument. After everything, they get across, they sing their kumbayas on the other side of the Red Sea. And does anybody know the very next thing they do? Sure wish we had some water over here, Moses. Pretty thirsty. You know, we had water in Egypt. God provides water. Very next thing. Whew. All this walking burns a lot of calories, Moses. You know, we had food in Egypt. It would been better to be back there, be in captivity, be beaten, to have our babies killed and murdered that was much better than being in this moment being hungry what does God do provides manna you think they'd be all happy man I'm, I'm thirsty again they hadn't even made it to Mount Sinai yet it hadn't even been a month they spent 40 years greatly oppressed and they'd get a month out of that revelation out of that experience and they start questioning God's love for them, questioning God's word over them, questioning God's ability to provide for them, questioning God's choice and leader in Moses. Less than a month. And here's the other thing. God was physically with them at this moment. They could look in the sky in the day and say, hey, there's that cloud's been leading us for a while. When they go to bed at night, they can look out. Hey, there's that pillar of fire that's kind of new but they begin questioning God they begin testing him 
And so that verse that Jesus quotes comes out of that moment. You shall not put your Lord, your God, to the test. You should not doubt His love for you, His provision for you. You should not doubt what He is doing for you currently. You should not doubt His presence in your life. You don't have to put yourself in unneeded danger, in unneeded circumstances, because God is with you. He's walking through you, or walking with you through this. But if, if we can doubt God, then we are going to test God. Well, God, you know what? I know all that's been great, what you've done for me in the past. I know my eternal salvation is set. But God, if you would just do this, then I'll do this. So we test him as if he hasn't proven himself already. But it doesn't seem fair. It does, I mean, does that seem fair that Satan knows Scripture it doesn't seem fair that it seems like it's stacked against us. He comes at us when we're weak. He comes at us with Scripture. He camouflages himself as an angel of light. He taunts us. He puts thoughts in our heads. He reminds us of things that we want to forget. He makes us doubt. He makes us question God. So it's no wonder we fall into temptation. So are we destined to fail? The answer is no. We're not destined to fail. And this is why Jesus went through the temptation. See, Jesus knew that we all would fall into temptations in our life. He knows that we're going to fall into temptations later today, even though we've been in the presence of God this morning. So Jesus goes through this temptation so that we can have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. But he overcame them. We are not destined to fail unless we do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are still in your sin before a Holy Father. But because Jesus overcame the temptation to be our perfect sacrifice, to take our punishment for our sin, to die on a cross and rise again, the Bible says when my faith is in that work and that work alone, I am saved and I do not die in my sin. You're not destined to fail if you have Jesus. You're standing in the victory. Unlike the other temptations, the third temptation gives no specific location, which is kind of a nice little reminder. Temptations can come anywhere and at any time. It says in verse 8 that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and was to show him all the authorities of the world, all the kingdoms of the world, and all their glory or all their splendor. The setting is to open the door for the final temptation in verse 9 of Matthew. And he said to him, All these things I give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now the if of this third temptation, unlike the previous two, the ifs were to taunt Jesus, to cast out. This if is more of a dare. I dare you. I dare you to bow down. You notice in every temptation, though, Satan puts a condition upon what he's willing to give. That's the reality of temptations. Temptations are false promises. They contain no authority. They contain no power. They offer a false sense of hope. They leave a momentary fulfillment. And with this final temptation, the devil is promising to give something that he can not. And this is the basis of temptations. When we follow temptations, it might produce a happiness or excitement or some sort of explosion in our brain of, of sensory overload. But it's only momentarily. They're temporary emotions. But when we look at the Word of God, God's Word says with the Spirit inside of us, He gives us a joy despite our circumstances. The devil tries to buy Jesus' affection with this final temptation, tries to get His allegiance, which is what He wants to do for us, and it's built upon a prerequisite if you will fall down and worship me. He's wanting Jesus to go against his convictions of worshiping God alone, just as the devil wants us to go against our convictions that God alone is worthy of our worship. We should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's, that's worship. The thing is, what Satan is offering, he has no authority to offer. 
He's wanting to give Jesus a temporary pleasure. He shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and promises Jesus that he would just bow down, they could be his. If he would just worship him, they could be his. But the kingdoms of the earth, if you read through Scripture, have already been preordained to bow down and worship Jesus. Every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow that Jesus is Lord. It's already been preordained by God. So Satan is trying to step out of God's word. The other issue is all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, according to Scripture, are going to come to an end. And God will place a new heaven and a new earth. It reveals to us no matter how enticing, even if it's the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, no matter how enticing the temptation is, they can only be momentarily. They will not last forever. They will eventually fade away. It's like every year when a new TV or every few years when a new electronic device comes out. We get tempted that I need the new one, even though ours is working perfectly fine. That's what Satan does in temptations. He wants something flashy and new to draw us to him instead of God. And then when that wears off, he gives us another thing. I love how Luke adds in Luke chapter 4, verse 5, that this temptation happened in a moment in time. In other words, these kingdoms and powers were only for a moment in time. They were only for momentary bliss. That's what the devil wants to give you. Momentary bliss instead of eternal satisfaction. That's all he can offer. He cannot offer you the things of God. You know, God has ifs too, though. Satan comes with ifs to pull us away from God. God has ifs too when it comes to obedience. God's ifs are built upon if you trust me, if you love me, if you know that I am God, then you will do this. But God's results of His ifs are eternal promises. They impact us not only today, but tomorrow and the next day. And they're based upon the premise that God created all life, therefore He knows how we can enjoy life. And when we fall into the ifs of God, which is the if of obedience, we get the abundant life that he's promised, the abundant joy. Just wrapping it up real quick. Jesus finally calls what has been called the tempter and the devil for who he is. In verse 10, be gone, Satan. It's with the final temptation and Jesus has heard enough. He gives his strongest rebuke, his strongest rebuttal, his strongest words to Satan in this moment. And he says, be gone, Satan. And do you know what Satan does? He'd be gone. He has to submit to God's word. As much as he is against it, he has to submit to God's word. But before Satan leaves, Jesus quotes one more passage. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, it's taken from the book of Deuteronomy, this time Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. where It reads there, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. In Deuteronomy, it's fear. Here in Matthew, it's worship. And Jesus isn't misquoting Scripture in this moment. He's given us a beautiful definition of worship. Worship is fear and awe of God. It's not songs, it's not instruments, it's not a time of day or a time or a day during the week. Worship is a life that is in fear and awe of God. And after Jesus gives Satan his little Bible school lesson, he sends him away and Satan has to go. But Luke adds one more thing, that Satan only departed from him for a time. Satan would appear again in Jesus' ministry through the Jewish religious leaders, even in his own disciples. Jesus had to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. It would appear through the people that Jesus came to save. It lets us know that even though we may withstand the temptations, the devil is relentless. 
Because the devil is after our heart, and that's what temptations do. Temptations are the devil's means to go after our heart, affection, and worship. We live in the world of if. If is our arena. If I fall to the devil, I move away from God and what he wants for my life. If I'm obedient to God, I experience his presence and the promises he's spoken over my life. The middle is the if. And God in His mercy and His grace allows us to choose which path we're going to choose. You may be here this morning and you're wrestling with a temptation. You're wrestling with a sin that you've fallen into. Maybe it's a habit you can't get past. You're just in the if. That sin, that temptation has no power over your life as a child of God. Rebuke it. Flee from the devil. Submit yourselves to God. Maybe you're here, you just need to submit that to God because you've been trying to do it in your own means. And Jesus shows, even when he was tempted, not to do it in our own means. Allow God to provide the strength. And if you're a child of God, God has given you that power by the Spirit that dwells inside you. Sometimes we get scared because we think, oh man, no one else is going through what I'm going through. We're all wrestling with sin in this place. We're all wrestling and struggling with things in our life. There's not a perfect person in here, including the guy with the microphone. Because we all need Jesus. And we need each other. I think the most dangerous things about churches at times is that we gather every Sunday. But we're so hesitant to actually share our lives and the things we're wrestling with. But we're brought here to be a family of God to go through this life together. To lift each other up. Maybe you're here and God is placing an if before you. If you will accept my gift of salvation. If you wonder if God loves you, there's a beautiful verse out of the Gospel of John. It says, For God so loved the world. The world is you. It's everyone in the world. It's Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Universalists. It's everyone. God loves everyone. He can do nothing but love them. He may not agree with all of them, but He can't help but love them. And God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. That's Jesus. And anyone who would believe in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. The if that God lays before you this morning are will you accept His gift of love for you? And if you will, He promises you eternal life and forgiveness for all your sins. That's the gospel. God created you for a relationship with Him. Your sins separate you from God. You cannot do anything about that in your own power, but God paid the price through Jesus for your sins and offers you forgiveness and eternal life today. If you're here and you need to accept God's gift and joining Him in a relationship, I'm going to be down here just because Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. Maybe you're here and you need to come kneel before the Father because you're battling. You're in, the, you're in an if moment. You're in the if arena. And Satan's trying to get you to doubt God's provision and His love and His worthiness. You just come and admit it to Him. Guess what? Here's the thing. He already knows. He already knows. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask Nick, just Nick and Nick and Bridget. All right, Nick and Bridget are coming leading this song. This is the time where we're going to respond to the Word of God. It's a time of invitation. I invite you to come kneel. I invite you to come and share with me. If, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose again, I invite you to come down and let that be known this morning. And we'll celebrate with you.